0: Hello and welcome to Tunneling Journal's podcast series, Our Underground Future, Episode 6. In this episode, Professor Dix draws on almost 30 years' global legal experience as a disaster investigator, lawyer and barrister with his candid insights and advice to explore the hidden cost of modern corruption in underground projects in which he strongly argues that from an ethical and moral perspective, governments, industry and each of us personally should be vigilant against unnecessary costs which he characterises as frictional
1: corruption taxes. Welcome to this the final the final discussion in our series. Today I want to talk to you about corruption. We couldn't have this talk about corruption if we hadn't talked about the incredible need for the underground and underground infrastructure for the future of civilization as we know it. We couldn't have had this discussion if we hadn't have spoken about the need for clean water, sanitation, transport, energy underground spaces for food production. If we hadn't spoken about all of that, we couldn't have this discussion now. Of all the discussions, this is the most difficult to have because I want to explore with you and I'd like you to consider that we are living in an era where corruption has a new form or new forms and where corruption might be described in all sorts of other ways, but in the end, it's practices and procedures, relationships and regulatory environments that make the cost of building, designing, operating, refurbishing our underground infrastructure higher than it should be. And if we consider corruption as being all those things which collectively conspire to make our infrastructure more expensive than it should be, then we can collectively, collectively focus on how to minimise that inefficiency, collectively focus on how to minimise what I like to consider a corruption tax in adding to the cost of what we do. you'll recall that we discussed contracts. It was no accident that we discussed contacts pre- previously. The reason we discussed the contracts is because the contracts set out the landscape for the interactions, the commercial interactions, the professional interactions that occur. And those contractual frameworks actually provide a skeleton for how we deal with each other commercially. We might talk about it in technical terms, we might talk about it in terms of regulation, we might talk about it in terms of standards, we might talk about it in all sorts of very clever and intellectual ways. But in the end, in the end, that framework translates into how we efficiently or how efficiently we're able to deliver this needed infrastructure, operate it, maintain it, refurbishing it. Now, Corruption, corruption has long been identified as one of the key enemies of civilization and civil society as we know it. We in our sector have to be more mindful, more mindful of the poison that corruption brings because we need civil society to be functioning at a high level for our projects to enjoy favour. Our projects are so expensive that they require the faith of governments and the people within the countries. The faith from the governments and the people within those countries to spend very large sums of money on projects which don't necessarily deliver a huge benefit instantaneously. And those decisions are in the face of immediate needs for education, health, um, surface transportation, a whole range of just normal day-to-day things. We need the social contract, the social activity of the world to be trusted, because without that there simply won't be the investments in the sort of infrastructure we we enjoy delivering and you can see that historically go back study your history books it's at the high points of civilizations that the aqueducts the big bridges the tunnels whatever it is you want to look at the major infrastructure is built civilizations do not build the things that are needed in the subsurface when there's a problem they build them when things are going well. Corruption is identified currently by the World Bank as absolutely disproportionate is its impact on society. In fact, in the most recent utterings on this, the World Bank said... Corruption has a disproportionate impact on the poor and most vulnerable, increasing costs and reducing access to services, including health, education and justice. As demand for effective service delivery, good infrastructure and fair institution continues to rise, it is vital that governments use scarce resources as efficiently and transparently as possible. And that was the World Bank Group President, Jim Yong Kim. In 2017. The opportunities for inefficient delivery of our complex subsurface infrastructure and thereby what I call the corruption taxes are enormous. The mechanisms to unjustly enrich the few to the disadvantage of the many are very complicated, they're obscure they're obscure, they're, they're, they're found in respectable transactions, entrenched by regulations and procedure, and for the most part, they're right in front of our face. We, as people passionate about the delivery of subsurface infrastructure for the benefit of mankind, have to be on high alert for these frictional taxes, these corrupt practices, and to campaign against them wherever we can. Not talking not talking, going in the streets and demonstrating or something like that. I'm talking about being the voice in the room in that meeting, in that risk assessment, at that workshop, at whatever the, the venue is that speaks about the benefits of making the project, whatever the project is, whatever phase, most efficient as possible and through our collective voice wherever we might be in small ways but incremental ways we can show leadership behavioral leadership that can contribute to the global reduction in these inefficiencies these frictional taxes these various forms of corruption and in doing so we can play our role in reducing the cost of our projects for the benefit of our industry because it's more sustainable and of course for mankind. Now, the United Nations position on this is pretty clear. The, the UN through its Convention Against Corruption actually describes the current state so this is how it is right now this is uh just actually this is a 2019 statement uh, on the situation corruption is an insidious plague that has a wide range of corrosive effects on societies it undermines democracy and the rule of law leads to violations of human rights distorts markets erodes the quality of life and allows for organised crime, terrorism, and other threats to human security to flourish. This evil phenomenon is found in all countries, big and small, rich and poor, But, but it is in the developing world that its effects are most destructive. Corruption hurts the poor disproportionately by diverting funds intended for development, undermining a government's ability to provide basic services, feeding inequality and injustice and discouraging foreign aid and investment. Corruption is a key element in economic underperformance and a major obstacle to poverty alleviation and development. That was Kofi Annan, 2020. The seriousness of this problem, the seriousness is that for us in delivering our major infrastructure-based reform agenda to help humanity lift itself through access to clean water, sanitation, energy and the like. In performing our mandate, we both have an obligation in existing countries that are doing well, whereas the United Nations says corruption is still alive and well. And we have a duty there because history tells us that great civilizations fall. So we have a duty to sustain great civilizations in which we work, and and there are these demands from the other countries which are seeking to join, if you like, the haves by investing heavily in their water, sanitation, transportation, energy. Etc. And when we look at the patterns, the actual patterns of these bad practices, we see that the, the the practices which contribute to the inefficiencies, and the practices which make the infrastructure more more expensive to deliver appear to be worse, and I'll explain what I mean by worse, but worse in the countries that can least afford it. And so in in order for us to take our place as global citizens, in order for us to protect our own countries and their positions of stability and prosperity... And in order to assist emerging countries to likewise become empowered, productive, and have opportunities, we need to always be considering how can we make our activity deliver this infrastructure, whether it's the design, build, maintain, operate, refurbish, more efficiently. Because the more efficiently we do it, the more prosperous we all become. The more work there is, the more sustainable the industry is, and the better it is for humanity. The UN, the UN's definition of the criminal offences for corruption are, and I'll just quote from the UN: uh, It's anybody who solicits or accepts the promises, offers, gives any undue advantage, including retaining or obtaining business, acting or refusing to act in accordance with their duties. That's a UN crime. You may recall that in an earlier discussion we had, I spoke about and we considered together that the criminal landscape for us as practitioners varies from place to place and in time. And here is the first tangible example of a potentially high-risk environment for each of us when we're working in countries in which we're unfamiliar. And the risk is that we go to another country and we're told that this is the way they do business here we're told that if you want to do this business then this is how you must play the game here well here's the warning there's a change of government just assuming that advice was correct just assume that whatever it is that you're being asked to do is acceptable in that country be aware that if there's a change of government Change of governments do happen. There's a change of government and there is a political desire to enact legislation, legislation domestically, which makes a practice which has previously been conducted but everyone's turned a blind eye to, it turns it into a crime. You can get caught. You can get caught because the game changes and my sense of the world at the moment is that there's a a battle being fought and it's a battle being fought between those who seek to entrench corrupt practices for the unjust enrichment of the few and there is a push from communities, a push from communities for transparency and accountability and to bring to justice justice those people who have been involved in the process of unjust enrichment, corruption. So be careful, be really careful. And if you're interested in putting these sorts of changes into perspective, take for example, the situation in America where the American Society of Civil Engineers has developed a code of ethics And in that code of ethics now, in that code, as a result of various issues within that country, Canon number six provides, engineers shall act in such a manner as to uphold and enhance the honour, integrity and dignity of the engineering profession and shall act with zero tolerance for bribery, fraud and corruption. At an international, level, not just a domestic level, bribery, fraud and corruption is increasingly a crime and it's increasingly a crime which is prosecuted against individuals and organisations in other countries. That is, the country you're from prosecutes you for your behaviour in another country. That is, the world is changing and it's changing in a way which favours more transparency, which favours more accountability and which is even more sensitive to wasting money, to enriching the few than it has been in a long time. Is this significant? Are these issues significant? Well, of course they are. Remember the scale, the scale of what we do. Just cast your mind around some of the major projects in the world today. Sao Paulo, Line 5, Brazil, a couple of billion. Auckland, City Rail, a couple of billion. Just, I say just a couple of billion because no point getting down to argue over the crumbs. The Kuala Lumpur, LRT3, around 4 billion. Cairo Metro, around six billion. Uh, Ignatia Otis Highway, nearly seven billion in Greece. Uh, Stuttgart 21, rail upgrade, over seven billion. Melbourne Metro, around eight billion in Australia. Myanmar, Vermuse Mandalay Railway, around nine billion. Everything we touch is multiples of billions. Billions. Okay. So this means that these projects in which we're we're acting, we are one of the actors. Of course, only one of so many people involved in them, only one of so many companies, but we're touching projects whose value impacts the GDP of nations. So the burden on us to keep that cost down to keep the value of that which we're helping create, that underground infrastructure. The burden for us to make sure that wherever we're building it, the cost is about the true value and doesn't have some extra, we'll call it frictional cost, corruption tax, corruption, is enormous. And I'm going to explain just how enormous it is because, my friends, it's not fair how this burden falls. If we consider, just consider for a moment, what a billion dollars in debt means for one person in a range of countries. Right. So it's a billion dollars in debt. How does that feel on the shoulders of a person in different countries? The first calculation First easy calculation we can do is say, well, what does that feel like on a person's shoulders? I'm just going to consider a range of countries. So a billion dollars spread over everyone's shoulders in Brazil is less than $5 a head in Brazil. It's around $10 a head in Egypt. It's a little over $10 a head in Germany a little under $20 a head in Myanmar, it's around $20 a head in New Zealand. It's about $30 a head in Malaysia, it's about $40 a head in Australia, and it's over $90 a head in Greece. Why? Because the debt the debt is a function of the number of citizens in a country. So, the debt burden when spread across all the people in that country varies partly as a function of the number of people. But it's not that simple. Not that simple. If we then ask ourselves not only what amount of money is the debt burden on people in different countries in an absolute sense, but we ask what percentage of the GDP that represents, so the productivity of the nation, a very interesting result occurs. It means that in the spread of countries, Germany, Brazil, New Zealand, Egypt, Australia, Malaysia, Myanmar, Greece, the biggest debt burden Per head of population as a function of GDP is in Greece. And the least burden as a function of GDP per person is in Germany. Coming in second for the burden is Myanmar. Coming in third, Malaysia. Coming in fourth, Australia. Coming in fifth, Egypt. Sixth, New Zealand, seventh Brazil, eighth Germany. In other words, the burden per billion per head as a function of economic productivity also isn't evenly spread. Highlights two things. Highlights that where you've got a highly performing economy with a high GDP, the burden on each citizen is less a billion dollars borrowed than in the country which is struggling. In other words, the importance of the infrastructure we're building is highlighted by the fact that the more of this infrastructure you've got and the more efficient and productive your country, the less the burden of getting more because your your economy is rolling and being productive. Now, that's when we consider it in raw terms as a percentage of GDP but there's another dimension to this and that's interest what's the cost of the money in the different countries so if we look if we look to world bank interest rates as an indicator of the cost of money and we look at the cost of money between Germany, Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, Greece, Brazil, Myanmar and Egypt, what do we find? It's a really, really, really critical question because we're digging right down into the nuts and bolts Down In the countries which are most productive, like Germany, Australia, New Zealand, the cost of money is least, And in the countries that are less productive, the cost of money is a lot more. So the lowest rate at the time I'm preparing this podcast is in Germany, where the interest rate is zero. Compare that, if you will, with the situation in Egypt, and I'm talking World Bank rates at the moment, but zero in Germany plays nearly 17% in Egypt. Australia at somewhere around 1%. New Zealand a little bit more. Brazil sitting a little bit over 6%. Greece sitting up around 7%. Myanmar setting up around 12%. So, when you put all of that together, not only do we have to consider the importance of delivering our infrastructure for a fair price, not only do we have to consider how we minimise the administrative costs, this corruption tax or corrupt practices, but we also need to have in our minds that the actual burden of that corruption the actual weight on the shoulders of the citizens of countries of corruption isn't uniformly distributed it's easier for a wealthy country it's easier for a wealthy country to accept the burden of corruption because actually even though there are corrupt practices the burden on the citizens individually isn't as much. So, if you accept that there are corrupt practices in all countries, it means that it's easier for a developed country with a thriving economy to absorb the costs of corruption than it is for countries that are struggling to emerge. It means that there's not equity amongst the citizens of every country. It means that doing something corrupt in one country isn't just wrong because it's universally wrong to be doing corrupt practices in a country, but the burden it causes, the corrupt practice itself, varies enormously from place to place. And it's very hard to quantify the difference, but let me try. There's a thing called a bribery index and a bribery index is uh, a published uh, published statistics on uh, variations in bribery per region. And the variations in bribery for reasons that I'm going to quote are from an organisation called Transparency.org, and it's a corruption barometer uh, from around the world. And this is the, uh, the most recent data available The most recent data available suggests that the rate of corruption in the EU is a little less than 10% and that the rate of corruption in the Latin America and Caribbean is around 30% and the highest rates of corruption are in the Middle East and North Africa, around 30%. doesn't trouble me exactly the number. The point is that the rates of corruption vary geographically and it appears that on its face, not only do the rates of corruption vary geographically, but that the places with the most corruption are those least able to afford it. And if we compare the interest rates and GDP of the countries that I've been using as examples, and we look at the impact of corruption, on the burden, on the citizen. Once again, we see this extraordinary relationship where countries such as Germany, Australia, New Zealand are comparatively well off in terms of the burden of an incidence of corruption. And other countries in which, as a general rule, corrupt practices are the norm, as in they're tolerated because they're expected, they're actually least able to afford it. This is very sensitive discussion. This is this is not something to be broadcast uh, on mainstream television or perhaps not even something for a public conference. It's strictly something for discussion here in your little earbuds between us both. It's a secret. We're just having this little talk, a private chat. It suggests that for us delivering major infrastructure... Not only do we have to be professional, not only do we have to be sensitive to where we are, not only do we have to be aware of how laws might change, but the burden upon us is even higher in countries where practices which would not be tolerated, say in some other countries, are tolerated. Or at least if they're not tolerated, a blind eye is turned. That doesn't make it right. And the reason it doesn't make it right is this is a recipe for disaster because if we want our subsurface infrastructure to proceed, if we want governments to have faith in our industry to develop underground infrastructure, we need to assist all nations to deliver it as efficiently as possible. And that means help them help them set up the sorts of environments, the sort of regulatory ecosystems, the sort of frameworks that encourage the most efficient use of their limited resources. There are really, really practical things that can be done. And in my view, in, in my view, we are uniquely placed to offer advice about how to structure an environment for the delivery of subsurface assets, an environment to operate, maintain, refurbish underground assets that minimises these corruption costs and maximises the efficiency of their delivery. Remember Remember the point I just made. When you adjust the cost of corruption on a hypothetical billion dollars of borrowed money and you integrate it with the cost of money in the various countries, absolutely, 100%, the countries least able to afford these inefficiencies are the ones that suffer them the most. So what do we as professionals, what do we as our industry have to offer? Well, we can offer tangible advice. The following measures as a minimum, I suggest to you assist. I asked you to consider good governance and transparency encourage governments to mandate governance and transparency requirements for all participants in major subsurface infrastructure. You can vary the exact provisions depending on the local environment. However, the government is uniquely placed to set the rules for engagement by which the major subsurface assets are delivered, operated, maintained and refurbished. Finance and insurance. Finance and insurance through a range of different tools can be set once again by government on both private and public sector debt. Likewise, risk mitigation through insurances can be regulated by government. Such controls on the finance and insurance can directly impact the nature and extent of intergenerational national debt. Procurement. The frameworks for lawful procurement are fundamental, absolutely fundamental for regulating the successful delivery, operation, maintenance, refurbishment of underground assets Robust procurement is a fundamental prerequisite to efficient and effective infrastructure delivery. The procurement strategy has to be realistic. It has to be realistic for where you are on earth and it has to be understood. Licensing and approvals. The licensing and approvals environment for project must be merit-based must be project-based and not some obscure veil for extortion of unjust enrichment of administrators and allied professionals. The practise in many countries of equipping local regulatory authorities with inappropriate power and inappropriate discretions undermines the delivery of major underground assets. Governments must understand and must implement reform that ensures that licensing and approvals are directed at the merits of our subsurface assets and not just another means of extorting money through utilities. For example, uh, you need an approval to move an electrical cable And you're not going to get it unless, as a project, you pay a million dollars. You need to deal with uh, excavated material and an authority which is ill-equipped to understand the risks of that material unilaterally imposes after the contract huge fees and other burdens on the disposal of the material. Not fair labour is also essential when setting up an environment for these major underground asset projects. That there is protection of income and safety of workers as a fundamental plank of project delivery. These projects have an opportunity to lead by example on proper project delivery. The Mechanisms of labour management, labour licensing and safety provide excellent opportunities for for improving the situation in a country and they shouldn't be used as a mechanism to unjustly enrich individuals or organisations through devious manipulation of labour markets. Audit verification complaints and adjudication ultimately projects need a mechanism to monitor bring to account and enforce government regulation of project activities however a government chooses to regulate the project the regulatory regime should be transparent efficient effective and ensure facilitation of the project delivery. For me, my, pref- my preferred mechanisms include alternative dispute mechanisms which keep projects of a highly technical nature and their various disputes out of traditional courts or if there are traditional courts, special divisions of those courts to deal with the problems faced by our major underground infrastructure projects. However it's done, It needs to be efficient, effective and support project delivery. Without that, the opportunities for perversion of the process, for diversion of funds and inefficiencies are enormous. My friends, when we first began this discussion, we agreed on the importance of our underground assets for civilization as we know it. We saw the relationship between great nations and their underground infrastructure. We've identified that in order for humanity to prosper, there should be minimum, minimum access to things like clean water, sanitation, transportation, energy. We've discussed the obligations on each of us to perform professionally and the standards that are expected of us. We've explored the use of risk assessments and we've explored the use of standards. We've even dealt with contracts and the way contracts change the landscape. Ultimately, each of us has the capacity and a duty to contribute to a shared future for humanity through the proper delivery use, operation, management, refurbishment of our underground assets. There's so much money involved in this industry that we also have the ability to undermine civil civil order as we know it. The opportunities to divert major funds into the hands of the few. The opportunities of our projects to allow different governments to have interests beyond their shores, the ability of major companies to dabble in the politics of other countries are challenges which have been with us for hundreds of years but are very much in the spotlight today and absolutely relevant to our subsurface infrastructure. We are the future, we have the knowledge and the capability to make an excellent future for humanity based upon the infrastructure that we can deliver, we individually know what's right and what's wrong, corruption is wrong. The unjust enrichment of the few to the disadvantage of the many is a disease which threatens to undermine civilizations as we know them. Our industry needs us to protect it and ourselves from these undercurrents. For the most part, we do an awesome job for the most part, each of you are doing an awesome job. Collectively, we can do a better job. And if we do, if we stay alert to the issues we've spoken about, the issues and subjects we've discussed over the past little while, then together we really can make a tangible difference to the future We really can bring clean water and sanitation and energy and transport to people around the world who might otherwise not have it. We really can support social order, civilisations and in a very real sense, promote humankind. Thank you for joining me on this journey our six discussions, ending here with this on the very sensitive subject of corruption. Go forward and contribute to this humanitarian cause. Underground assets are wonderful things. It's a wonderful career. And together, we really are making a difference. Thank you.
0: That was internationally acclaimed underground expert, Professor Arnold Dix, lawyer, scientist, and engineer, having now explored the importance of the legal framework, negligence, risk assessments, common practices, standards, and corruption for delivering our underground future. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Tunneling Journal.